Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, February the 13th, 2024. It is currently 3.36 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. So how is it going? Come on, how is it going? You've been involved. Hopefully some of you have been participating in our 21 Days in the Minor Prophets for our Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, right? Remember, we have the bigger challenge. That is every single day you're taking the Sermons 2.0 app, you're going to Discovery, and you're choosing a random sermon, right? As random as possible. You're not trying to look for anything. You're playing it. You're writing down the name of the sermon, the name of the church, and then you're writing like a one-sentence summary of the sermon you have heard. And what we want is you to have a notebook that represents a sermon for every day of 2024. That is what we're attempting to do. I cannot speak for you. Things have not worked out that well because it's about the time we got the challenge going, then I ended up with COVID and ended up sick and it's just been, and then other things have going on and then this, and then I got this and I'm worrying about this and I'm trying to fix this and I'm trying to fix that. And, uh, and the next thing you know, you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be listening to sermons. So I'm going to try to make up for a, uh, some lost time and we're going to see what we can do. But also in the middle of our sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, there are these times where I'm like, okay, today your random sermon is on this or your random sermon is it. Now you're still looking up a random sermon, but you have a more specific chapter book or topic that you're looking for, because I'm trying to get you to use the Sermons 2.0 app in so many different ways to look up messages on a topic, to look up messages on a verse, on a chapter, on a book, uh, on a doctrine, on, on, on an area of theology. I'm trying to get you to use it in so many different ways. And so we, I say we, I came up with this brilliant idea, and it's because of the Discover the Word podcast, because they're spending three weeks in the Minor Prophets. I'm like, well, they're spending three weeks. Well, then we can spend 21 days, right? See see how that works, right? So we're going to spend 21 days in the Minor Prophets, and I'm going to challenge everyone each day to grab the Sermons 2.0 app and do a search for a specific you know, minor prophet and just kind of go through each book, one sermon for each book, then start over and just really try to get as much out of it as possible. Now, it's one of those things where I cannot interpret silence. I cannot interpret silence. So I'd never try to. Sometimes silence tells me, well, that was a really bad idea because no one is participating. No one is engaged in it. So then you want to just kind of quit, but I'm not going to quit. We're going to make it through the 21 days and hopefully I can get you invested to use the Sermons 2.0 app to listen to some messages, okay, to, to do that because I think that's, and, and you're hearing messages from all kinds of different perspectives. Now, so far, as far as the challenge for me to broadcast some messages or do some sermon reviews from sermons on the Minor Prophets, <laughs> well... Our, our last one on the book of Hosea, that did not go so well. I almost wanted to continue that one. I almost wanted to go back and continue that. That didn't. Now, our, we did a couple of messages on succeeding over sin. That, that little mini series garnered far more interest 
A lot more people were interested in that. So that that is a positive. That is a positive. They, a lot of people want me to do part three on that. So maybe I will go do that. Um, so I, I found that fascinating. But the minor prophets are not generating much much uh, discussion. And you think it would because you think people would be listening to sermons on the minor prophets going, well, wait a minute. What about this? Or what about that? And what about this? And But it, it really hasn't turned into that. And that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly okay. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to jump to a sermon in the book of Obadiah. I, I, I know we kind of skipped a little bit, right? Because we were in Hosea. Then, you know, we should have went to Joel. Then we went should have went to Amos. And then we should have went to Obadiah. But you know what? I'm skipping around. So, And you can skip around if you would like as well. There's just, you know, trying to... The sermon reviews take a very long time. So if I'm going to do a sermon review for every one of the minor prophets, you know... That, that that can turn into two, three, four hours of, of broadcasting. And I've had so many other things going on and worrying about things. So um, hopefully um, I, I can kind of make up for some lost time. But I thought we would just jump to the book of Obadiah for no particular reason. But, you know, that I think I, I think I, I either put in the minor of prophets. I don't know how I found it. Again, I chose it at random. And so I have it queued up and we're going to listen to it. In the meantime couple of things, a couple of things. I'm going to, I'm going to reach over here and grab uh, my iPad and I'm going to open up the Sermons 2.0 app. Now, currently Bible Baptist Waynesville, North Carolina, Bible Baptist Waynesville, North Carolina, they're doing something called, uh, I guess, hang on, let me go to the, let me go to the broadcast information. I don't want to, uh, don't want to give it the wrong name. They're calling it where is this? Well, it's now it's Tuesday afternoon Jubilee. So they've been doing these messages on Jubilee. Or no, 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 on Jubilee. They're calling it. Well, where's their others? Okay. I don't know what happened. They were doing a bunch of broadcast. It's like some kind of a conference or a ref or a, a revival thing. I don't know where the other ones are. Uh, hang on. Let me see if I can. A, a lot of times. Well, they have the Tuesday afternoon jubilee. Maybe they're going to up, upload the others. I don't. I don't know where the other ones are. I don't know what happened. Where? Why? 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 Why would you not have all of them? I don't know. Okay, Th- this happens sometimes. So, well, first, let's do this. First, first, let's do this. Let's do a couple of things. Number one, it for the rest of 2024 for our sermons 2.0 app challenge. This is what I need you to be. I need you to be my detective. I need you to be my lookout. Whenever you're looking at your Sermons 2.0 app, and always every day check the webcast and just see what webcasts are going on. If you ever notice that someone is live streaming a conference or a revival where there's a series like, you know, we're going to have revival services for five nights or we're going to have a conference on this for four nights or five nights. If they're streaming that, let me know, hey, this one is doing a, a conference. It just started or they're going to be because then one, I can promote it and then we can listen to it and watch it and talk about it. Kind of like we did the Sword of the Lord conference at, uh, last summer, right? And hopefully we'll do that again this summer. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun doing that. There were times I was very frustrated by the end, but th- it was still a lot of fun. So uh, they're doing this Jubilee thing. But but one of the things that, listen, if your church broadcast on Sermons 2.0, Sermon Audio, if they're broadcasting on that, those platforms, or if you know any of the ministries that are broadcasting on any of these platforms, if they're doing live streams, 
Could you strongly encourage them that when the live stream is over to upload what just broadcasted? Okay, could you could you encourage them to do that? Because so many times like, oh, they're doing a conference and I can't just sit there and watch it live. So I'll, I'll hit follow and then I'll go back and I'm like, where's the messages? You were doing you were I saw you webcasting like multiple hours a day. Where 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 is it at? And it won't be there. And I always get frustrated. I'm like, if you're broadcasting it, upload it. But let's see if we can keep our eyes out for conferences. Anything going on, and then we'll follow one and then we'll review some of the messages and, and one we can have people tune in. So right now they're broadcasting. They have 33 total people watching, which is really good numbers. That's awesome. Okay, I don't I don't think we've ever had that. Um and uh, Bible Baptist Waynesville, they have 38 sermons. So I'm assuming they're a relatively new broadcaster. So, hey, go check them out. Follow them. Remember, in your Sermons 2.0 app, make sure you sign up so you can follow. The broadcasters you follow show up in your feed, right? So then whenever a, a new message, and well, you should be following Theology Central. I mean, come on now. Like, why? wait, you're not? What are you doing? All right. So, so let's let's keep an eye out for those and see if we can uh, get get something out of it, and uh, maybe we can do a a, a five day challenge to listen to all the messages from a conference or a ten day challenge or however however many uh, messages there are. So see, so keep an eye out for that. And um, well, yeah. And if you're looking, just so that you know, like if we look at the discovery tab and we go to newest sermons, the newest sermons. On the Sermons 2.0 app, as of Tuesday, February the 13th, 2024, at 3.45 p.m., here are the newest sermons. Number one, the parable of the wedding feast. Number two, hats, hair, and humility. Number three, weak and beggarly elements. Number four, that be in Christ. Number five, let my people go. Ooh, this one looks interesting. Intro to Nehemiah. I'm assuming they're getting ready to start a series. Counting loss, gaining Christ. God's call to mankind. My shepherd, the breastplate of righteousness. Um, being filled with the spirit. The growth that problems bring. Let not your heart be troubled. Covered by a cloud. We can live on the victory side. Victory mixed with sorrow. Motives, methods, and ends, prayer, and opportunity to communicate with the king of all creation, the greatness of grace. Are we going in circles? The benefits of the law of God. Ooh, that could be interesting. Oh, here's one. How to interpret the Bible. How to interpret the Bible about Bible Baptist Church. Oh, we, that, we need that one. I, we need that one. I'm, I've got to hang on. I'm going to go grab that one really quick. We need that. I'm going to bookmark it. I'm going to download it. All right. I want to hear this one. Don't you want to hear this one? How to interpret the Bible? I want to. I want to do this one right now. I want to do this one. I want to hear. I want to hear. I want to hear. So if they've figured it out, then maybe if everyone could follow their method of interpretation, then all Christians would agree, right? Okay. Right. So, but I do want to hear it. I do want to hear it. So hang on. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. It's downloading, right? So it'll be right there in my library for me to do so. And they get the download number. So I always like helping out uh, churches. All right. I, I won't keep reading them. There's literally hundreds of uh, new sermons. Hundreds. Hundreds. Well, one's called A Holy Danger. That sounds interesting. Um, 
out with the old self, in with the new, uh, living in the new self. Oh, those, those both sound interesting. All right. Uh, okay. Um, oh, oh, wait, billionaire bunkers and the Bible. I wonder who, oh yeah, that was mine. So yeah, mine's almost at the bottom and that wasn't too long ago. That shows how many new uh, sermons have been added since I broadcasted last. It's like, you can never keep up. Hey, use it, please. Okay. Use it. All right. Now, in the meantime, it's 12 minutes and 32 seconds of trying to get you to, 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 really embrace the Sermons 2.0 app challenge, all right? And remember, Sermons 2.0 app and Sermon Audio are going to have their, their what, 24 hours of day uh, of prayer coming up. So you can be checking out, if you go to uh, beta uh, or beta.sermonaudio.com, I think beta.sermonaudio.com uh, on their uh, new webpage. It's still a beta page right now. And then if you look there, and I think you also look at the home tab on your Sermons 2.0 app, you'll see some information about that, and you may want to participate in that as well. Now, with all of that said, my Bible is open to the book of Obadiah, and we're going to begin. Notebooks open, pencils in hand, Bible open to the book of Obadiah. Let's see. Now, remember, I choose these sermons at random. I don't listen to them first. So I can say this is, I, I, I'm always going in it hopeful. Sometimes we never put it this way. The one thing we enter into the unknown. We never know what we're going to hear. And that's the fun part. Now, it should be more fun for you because I have to be the one offering critique and analysis with no prep. <laughs> There's, and I have no safety net. So hopefully I will say something that'll be valuable. Here we go. This morning, Obadiah, this is the word of Almighty God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations saying... Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Eden, the understanding from the mountains of Esau? 
Then your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. In the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead and the captives of their host, This host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, I'm sorry, I forgot to turn the microphone on on, onto uh, the other platform that we're recording on. All right, he just read 21 verses in the book of Obadiah. He just read 21 verses in the book of Obadiah. And um, this raises a question. So right here from the start... Because when I, when I, you know, offer this analysis and review and critique, I always, sometimes I look at it, obviously, I try to look at it from the listener's perspective. I try to listen, I try to look at it from the preacher's perspective. I try to look at it from a hermeneutical perspective. I try to look at it from so many different angles and try to offer questions and and thoughts. But this is a question more for the people sitting in the pew, right? Now, if I think about it, if I'm, if I'm preaching, all right, so I'll start from, from my perspective as a preacher. 
from someone standing behind a pulpit. I'm not a fan of doing what he just did, standing there reading 21 verses. I'm not a fan of that. And here's the reason. When I preach a passage or a text, I don't like, I I know this is somewhat foolish, but in my brain, I don't want people to know what's coming. Like if we're going to be covering 10 verses, I don't want them to know all 10 verses before we start. I want to walk through the verses and some kind of logical progression building this connects to this, this connects to this. And I don't want people to see what's coming. I want to keep it like, hey, you know, let's act like we don't know what's coming. I, because in many cases you already know, but let's try to work through this like you don't. Because maybe instead of just bringing that presupposition and that understanding to it, I, I don't like, it just seems to ruin it. Like I, it's like seeing the end of the movie before it starts. I don't like that. So I like to, I, I, so I, I, so I, that's one of the reasons I don't like to read that way. I don't, I like to just work through it. Now with the lectionary reading, sometimes I will, but I, I still am not a fan of that. Okay. So that's number one. I'm not a fan of it for that reason. Number two, I'm not a fan of it because I just stink at it. Right. And I stink at it for a couple of reasons. One, if I start reading it, Almost inevitably, I'll want to stop and start talking about it and exegeting it and discussing it and asking questions and giving you my personal emotional connection to it. My, I like it. I don't like it. This bothers me. I, I, it's almost impossible for me to read without interrupting it. So that, that's, that's, an, that's why I stink at it. Next, I'm just a horrible public out loud reader. I'm just horrible at, at it. I read so fast like silently to myself, you know, probably classified as a speed reader, I I can fly through things. Now, when I'm flying through things, you know, when you do speed reading, you're just barely reading some of it, right? You're kind of skipping certain things. So, um, yeah, that, (laughs) that's not good when you're reading publicly, right? You need to slow down. You need to enunciate. You need to make sure you're following the punctuation. There's a period. There's a comma. Typically, I blow right past the, the periods, the commas. So then it all run together and then I'll hear how it sounds. Sometimes I'll back it up. Sometimes I'm reading so fast in my brain. Who knows what word, how I'm pronouncing things? You know, who knows? It may be, who knows what I'm going to say? So I, so I don't like doing it for that reason. So from a from a speak from a preaching perspective, I don't like to do it because I feel like I'm giving away, you know, what's going to happen. And I like to try to build it to it. Right. So I, so I don't like to do it that way. Secondly, I don't like to do it because I just have a hard time reading that way. And, and I'm just a bad public reader. Now from a, another reason I don't like to do it in my estimation, here's what happens. The people out there, when you, even if you just read a section what they have a tendency to do. You're trying to preach. You've read, you've stopped reading. They don't stop reading. They don't. They just keep looking. They keep looking. And that drives me crazy. And this happens sometimes in my church because we do a lot of things like maybe with a Bible dictionary. So I'll just have them look for one thing and I'm like, okay, and we'll continue. And I'm sitting there talking and not one person is looking at me. They all have their heads down. And I know they're all still reading the Bible dictionary. And sometimes I want to say, hey, hey, hey. There's a sermon going on here. Look up here. Like, come on, right? So sometimes I'll just ask a question and then they'll be like, wait, where are we? Yeah, yeah. There's a sermon going on, right? Sometimes you can tell that they're still re- looking at their Bible. They're still looking at their Bible and you're kind of like, um, I'll wait I'll wait till everyone's done, right? And I know the people in the pew never realize how that impacts the person speaking. So 
sometimes I don't like to do any of that. Sometimes I'm like, hey, this is what we're going to cover. Now let's begin. Here we go. Let's read. Now let's con- like and try to keep the people engaged. So I, I don't know. You may love that. Some people probably love the fact that he read all 21 verses, but I, I have a hard time with that a little bit. So I don't know. You can, you can, uh, yeah, you, you can, if you have insight in what you like, I I bet you, if you ask 10 people in your church, you're going to get 20 different answers. So, all right, let's continue. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. And though it is hard at times for us to stomach, we pray that it might make us wise unto salvation. Lord, especially if any here today are not true believers, we pray that you will use this word by your spirit to draw them to Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We began looking at Obadiah last week. I said there were two major themes I want you to draw out of the book. And we began looking at the first one, the most explicit one last week, that the day of the Lord will bring judgment on all nations. All right, so this is obviously part two. I thought I I didn't realize this. It's called the day of the Lord and apostasy. So at least the first major theme he sees in the book is that the day of the Lord is judgment upon all the nations. Now, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I believe that as far as the writing prophets are concerned, because some prophets they spoke and someone else recorded their words, and then you have the prophets who, who actually they wrote down their prophecy. I believe Obadiah was the first, if you, depending on the chronological order of the writing prophets, I think he's the first to use the phrase day of the Lord. I could be wrong. I could be very wrong about that. Um, in fact, let me look here. Okay. So I'm just going to open this up. I have the, uh, Schofield Bible. And so I'm going to read his introduction to Obadiah. Internal evidence seems to fix the date of Obadiah's ministry and the reign of the bloody Athaliah, uh, 2 Kings 8, 16 to 26. If this be true, and if the ministry of Joel was during the reign of Joash, then Obadiah is chronologically first of the writing prophets. All right. All right. So that's that would make sense. So according to him, internal evidence uh, fixes the date of Obadiah's ministry to, to the reign of bloody Athaliah, A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H, Athaliah, 2 Kings 8, 16 through 26. And uh, so he goes, so he would be chronologically, he would be the first of the writing prophets. Oh, and here it is. And first to use the formula, the day of the Lord. All right, so that he says that's a ma- major theme is this the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And that phrase is used a lot and exactly what it's referencing. He he is summarizing the day of the Lord is God's judgment upon all the nations. Is it simply God's judgment upon the nations or does it encompass judgment in general? Does it encompass does it does it sometimes speak of something more specific? 
well, we could, well, let's see where else he's going to go. And then he, so that's the first major theme. What's the second major theme? Especially seen in verses 15 and 16. All nations, all nations, whether they acknowledge the existence of God or not. All nations, whether they acknowledge the lordship of God or not. Whether they acknowledge the rights of God to speak about their lives and rule over them or not. Obadiah makes clear, all nations shall be judged on the last day. And he uses he uses a specific example in his own day to make this point to us about the last day. We began looking at it last week with Edom, and we focused on the pride of Edom. Various types of pride displayed, especially in the first nine verses. And we also noticed what verse 15 makes clear, that God... God will, in his judgment, there will be a divine irony. I don't think I phrased it that way last week. A divine irony in God's judgment. They will be judged according to their works. We saw that each of the areas of sinful pride and arrogance that Edom had that caused them to rise up in their own hearts against the Lord are the very things that will fail Edom and through which God will bring judgment on them. We're going to see some more of those examples today, that divine irony in a a very fair judgment. I think, though, we can also see something specific in today's portion, verses 10 through 14. That Edom is not only an example of a nation, but also targets for us a particular type of nation and specifically a particular type of person. We have personal names being used here and personal names to draw us to this. That even the one who has been a part of the people of God in outward form and outward words or outwardly by family, and has abandoned that covenant God. Even that one will be judged on the last day. There will not be this this exception to the rule. Well, if you worshipped vain idols, you will be judged on the last day. But if you grew up in a Christian home, you might escape even if you're not a true believer. No, Obadiah is making it clear, and we'll get to this in this sermon, I hope, that even the apostate, a big word that means one who leaves the faith, will not escape the day of judgment. There won't be a partial salvation. It won't be as bad for you, for those who have outwardly looked like they're in the faith. So let's look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. 
So I'm guessing the two major aspects here in the book of Obadiah is the day of the Lord and apostasy, because that's the name of the sermon. He didn't really, he kind of said the first is the day of the Lord, and then he didn't really specify the second, or at least I didn't hear it. Um, so I'm assuming that's what he's kind of breaking, that the day of the Lord and apostasy. So it looks like he's going to focus more on apostasy here. Maybe in the last one, they focused on the day of the Lord. I'm not sure, but so we're, I think he's, he may focus more on apostasy. Now, he's not really giving us, well, okay, we'll just, we'll just see where it goes. It looks like 10 through 14 is the, is the intended goal here, the focus. Let's see what we learn about 10 through 14. And the first thing I want you to notice here is the use of names. Obadiah is, as declared in verse 1, a statement against the nation of Edom. But unless I missed in my count, maybe I skipped over one, but I think the name Edom is only used twice in this prophecy. But notice that the name Esau is used seven times. Esau, the son of Abraham, the brother of Jacob, Jacob the one also known as Israel, from whom the twelve tribes were born. Esau, the older brother, the son of, I said the son of Abraham, but I meant the son of Isaac. Gracious of you not to all outcry, because I know your Bible knowledge is better than that. The son of Isaac, firstborn son, the one who had the rights to all the best privileges of being in a covenant with God, right? He is the epitome of one who from the outward perspective was part of the visible people of God, the family of covenant. And he turned from it. And from him comes the nation of Edom. Now that was over a thousand years before Obadiah was written. And as far as I can tell, maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I can tell, the Edomites didn't walk around saying, we're the sons of Esau. That, that wasn't something they boasted in. So for a thousand years to have passed, remember where your ancestors were a thousand years ago? Do you know the name of any of your ancestors from a thousand years ago? We, we Americans think it's pretty good when we can say, you know, I, I can say of my wife and my children that they're, what is it, 13th generation from uh, a guy who lived in, in the Plymouth colony here. That wasn't a thousand years ago. It wasn't even remotely close to a thousand years ago. So why does Obadiah keep emphasizing this name that they don't go by themselves and was over a thousand years ago? He's making a point to God's people about the danger of covenant unfaithfulness, which is just a technical way to say of turning from the one living and true God. Esau turned from the one living and true God. Now this this is interesting, and I do like the fact that he has he has noticed this that Edom is only mentioned. Well, let's see how many times is Edom mentioned. All right, it's mentioned in verse one. It's the word concerning Edom. 
Um, let's see here. I know it's mentioned again in verse 8. Edom is mentioned in verse 8. I think he said three times. I think he may be right. I think he may be right. Uh, it's in the chapter, some of the section headings, but that's not the inspired scripture. So Edom is mentioned maybe three, two, maybe three times at best, maybe only two. All right. But Esau is mentioned multiple times. Now, that's the kind of thing as a good Bible reader, a good Bible student, you need to pay attention to. Wait a minute. Why is Edom only mentioned once, but Esau, 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 Esau? It's using this name. You know, so why? Why Why is it using Esau versus Edom? Why? Right? Like, you know, we, we could have a discussion about that. He offers the... His explanation is he's not using Edom, he's using Esau because he's trying to show a more individualistic approach to the consequences of walking away from God's covenant. That seems to be the, his approach. Now, you can see if you agree with that or not, but all right, let, let's, let's see what, what he's going to do with this. And will his judgment, because he was part of that covenant family, will it be less on the day of judgment? than pagan kings? No, it will actually be more severe. It will be a stricter judgment. That's what we find in the text. Now, how can the nation be held to this stricter judgment when they haven't claimed the one living and true God for a thousand years? How can God here emphasize that their sin is the sin of Cain? God doesn't use the word Cain here, does he? But the sin of Cain, remember the sin of Cain? He butchered his brother. And then had the gall to say to God, Am I my brother's keeper? Obadiah is emphasizing that the sin of Edom is pride. Yes, we looked at that last week in a general sense. But specifically, Esau will be judged for what it did to its brother, Israel, the nation. God, a thousand years after Esau had left the faith, still required his people to treat the Edomites like brothers, not in the sense of pretending they were right with God, not in the sense of Israel pretending that their religion was just as valid, but they were to treat them as unsaved brothers. They were not to fight and destroy the Edomites when they came into the promised land after all those hundreds of years. And the Edomites knew that God had put that brotherly protection on them. They knew, didn't they? Joshua and the army came in. How much quarter was given to the Canaanites? Wasn't supposed to be any. How much quarter was given to the Philistines? How much were the Amorites allowed to just be treated as neighbors and Left alone, God said, none of that. Go to war with them, all out war. What did God say about Edom? Because of Esau, do not fight with them. Don't pick a fight unless they attack you. 
Edom knew that they had special treatment from Israel, or they were supposed to. Now, Israel failed numerous times to obey God in this way, but Edom knew that there was supposed to be this difference. And God is saying, you're being judged as a brother. Look at what he did to his brother nation. Verse 11. They committed violence against Judah, how? By standing afar off. That is, when Babylon came against Jerusalem, the Edomites had allied themselves with Babylon and those other allies. They were a little army. They didn't actually go and fight against Jerusalem, apparently. They just watched as it happened. They were a silent partner. They stood by at the borders and let the Babylonian army do it. The Babylonian army didn't need the Edomites. They didn't care. But they just stood there and watched. God calls that violence against one's brother. Verse 12 shows us that it wasn't just a standing afar off saying, well, what was I supposed to do? We're small. We couldn't have done any good anyway, and it just would have hurt our own children. So what could we do? Are we our brother's keeper? No, that would have been bad enough, but verse 12 shows us that this violent sin isn't just standing afar off, but from a distance, gloating and mocking and celebrating the downfall of their brother nation. They mocked, they scorned, they rejoiced. They got the balloons ready for the Babylon Day Parade. But it didn't stop there even. Verse 13, then once the Babylonians had pillaged Jerusalem, they went in and pillaged too. What I would challenge you to do, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to let him, I'm obviously trying to figure out where he's going, but what I would challenge you to do, since Obadiah is only 21 verses, I would challenge you to take your pencil and your notebook and go through and write down the specific sins of Edom right now. If you don't now, I know he's not given much background. So if you need just a little bit of background just to help you out. So in the book of Obadiah, Edom refers to a nation or people descended from Esau, okay, which I'm hoping you've kind of already got that or you already knew that, uh, the brother of Jacob in the Old Testament. The Edomites were descendants of Esau and inhabited the region of Edom, situated south of the Dead Sea. Throughout the Bible, the Edomites are often portrayed as enemies of the Israelites and are criticized for their hostility and mistreatment towards God's chosen people. In the book of Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah delivers a message of judgment against Edom for their sins, particularly their pride, violence against the Israelites, and rejoicing over the fall of Jerusalem. The prophecy foretells the destruction and downfall of Edom as a consequence of their actions. So because this book, Obadiah, outlines the sins of Edom, what I would challenge you to do is make a list of the sins of Edom. Just go through Obadiah 1 and just, or the sins of Edom. 
The sins of Esau, I mean, I know that uses Esau a lot, but it's the same. I mean, they descended from Edom. So there's a, there's a, con- cor- a correlation, a connection there. So go through and write down the sins of Esau slash Edom and just make a list one and give the verse and just have a list of those sins. And then just look at those sins and then ask yourself after you, after you write them down, then at the end, how do you, how do you see yourself in the sins of Esau slash Edom? How do you see yourself? Now you've got to be honest with yourself, right? This is not, you know, time to be all self-righteous and, and, you know, put on your fig leaves and your robe of self-righteousness, right? Just write, make a list, make a list of the sins there. Just go through them. One, two, three, four, five. Now, if you make a list, I want the list. Send it to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. You don't have to tell me the ones you're committing. I don't need to know that. But see, how do you see yourself in the sins of, of, of the Edomites, of, of, of Esau? How do you see, what, what do you see here? All right? Because I think we can probably draw some, some parallels, but we'll let him do what he wants to do with this. So here we go. Now, you might remember that last week in verse 5, we saw God in his threats against Edom saying that their judgment would be so complete there'd be nothing left over. He used imagery. He said, if a thief broke into your house, they would steal until they got what they needed and then they would leave the rest of your junk. They'll take the jewelry and the money box, but at least they'll leave you the throw the throw pillows or whatever those things are called. They'll they'll leave some sandwich meat in the fridge. A a thief doesn't come in and take the bed that you're sleeping in in the middle of the night. And he said, but I'm I'm going to leave Edom bare. There won't be anything there. Look. Now I got to interrupt now, now, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to see where I can take this. For me, when he read this, the part that now, and it's not, now this is not his fault because he's focusing on 10 through 14. Now he just jumped back to verse five, but when he jumped to verse five and I immediately looked down at verse five, verse three jumped back, back out at me because verse three is the verse that jumped out at me when he read it. Let me read Obadiah three. All right. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. That to me should be written down. If you want to talk about the sins listed, the pride of your heart deceived thee. So the pride of heart is the sin, but it deceives you. So that's a question I have for you, a question I have for myself. That's the question I'm sitting here thinking as I'm trying to listen is how has the pride of my own heart led to my own self-deception? The greatest deception is self-deception, right? The heart is deceitful. Your own heart is deceitful above all things. And the pride of heart even adds to that deception. When has your own pride led to your deception? That's why pride is so dangerous because it deceives you. Look at that region today. Look at Petra and everything surrounding it. Oh. There's nothing left of Edom there. Even Petra can't be claimed by Edom. That was someone else's magnificent achievement. But you see, part of the irony of verse 5 and God judging them that way was that it was a fair judgment. 
Edom went in after the Babylonians had pillaged Jerusalem and they took everything that was left. In fact, you can even think of looting in another sense. After taking everything that was left in Jerusalem, they also, during that time of Israel's captivity, took part of Judah as their own territory. We're just going to move in. Take these cities we did not build. Take these homes we did not build. The irony is that once they'd done that, someone else went in and took Edom. And then when the Babylonians, well, the the Medes and Persians, sent Israel back to Jerusalem, where did the Edomites have to go? When the Jews were back in the Promised Land and the Maccabees came with their strength, they destroyed what was left of Edom. And the only Edomites that remained were a few families that married in to Judah. One of which, of course, was the family of the great Herods, who reigned later. But by 70 AD, even that family was wiped off the face of the planet. There are not Edomites in the world today. But there are Jews, aren't there? The irony of God's judgment, both on his people who are persecuted and on those who attack them. And then not only did they pillage, verse 13, but verse 14, the most wicked, violent part of what Edom did against its brother. It might not have engaged in the actual pillage of Jerusalem, the attack on Jerusalem, but they stood at their borders. And when those few refugees escaped the Babylonians, those few people who had the foresight to escape the city and hide in a cave or in the woods when Jerusalem was being destroyed, when they tried to sneak out at night and cross the border, maybe to escape to Egypt or maybe to escape somewhere else into the wilderness, the Edomites were waiting. And they slaughtered them at the Jordan River. And those that they didn't kill at the Jordan River, they captured and cheerfully handed over to the Babylonians. Violence against the brother. But Obadiah also tells us this. That God's people, the brother who has been attacked, will take a part in the judgment of the wicked brother. We have to be really cautious here because we still have sin, which means we still have vindictiveness. But Obadiah does show us that in some way, on the last day when we see Christ face to face and we are like him, therefore we have no more sin, he will use us in the judgment of the apostate who turns from the faith. We see this in two, past, uh, two verses of Obadiah. Verse 18, very powerfully. I'm trying to follow here. I'm trying to follow. Because 10 through 14 is the text. And so now he's jumping to 18. Because somehow we are going to be used to judge the apostate. And 18 says, 
And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. I'm not I'm not seeing exactly I'm not seeing exactly where Okay, I'm going to have to have him explain. It just feels, it feels odd because I thought 10 through 14 is what I'm trying to follow, right? Because that's what he's, I thought he was going to kind of take apart. But now we're jumping to this idea that we, on the last day, we will judge the apostate who turns from that we are going to be the one carrying out the judgment. Now, I don't know if I'm going to derive that from Obadiah 18, even if that happened in a historical context, that's, is that prescribing? Now, I'm assuming he's going to have a verse in the New Testament. So let, let's let him finish this out before I'm just trying to follow because I'm still like, wait a minute, we're in 10 through 14. But okay. All right. Let, let's see where this goes. That Jacob and Joseph are like fire. And on that day, they will burn up the stubble that is Edom. Or in the final verse, that the Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. We'll have to engage with that next week. Who are the Saviors? What does that mean? But it does reflect in some way that God's people will stand as minor judges under the lordship of King Jesus, the righteous judge, on the last day in the judgment on the wicked. Well, here we have the brother cutting down his brother in Obadiah. And the apostate in our world often takes two forms. I I suppose I should pause and qualify this word apostate. We don't use it today. Okay, I'm still trying. He didn't really explain to me. He he, he took from this and just jumped. And that we're going to judge others. All right. Okay. Uh, so I so I I'm, I'm looking some things up here. All right. I'm I'm gonna look. I'm just having. I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to figure this out a little bit. I'm trying to figure this out. All right. So I just looked something up in Christian theology. The belief in judgment on, on the last day, often referring to as the final judgment or the last judgment, is a significant concept. According to Christian belief, on this day, all individuals will be judged by God based on their earthly deeds and will be either rewarded with eternal life in heaven or punished with eternal damnation in hell. Now, and, and, and that is true. The Bible constantly says we're going to be judged according to our works. We're going to be judged according to our works. We're going to be judged according to our works, which raises all kinds of questions. I thought we were, J, we were saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now, this leads to major division within Christian theology. Some believes your works will prove that you're saved. And I think that's crazy because if your works are going to prove you're saved, they have to be perfect works and none of our works are perfect. So that's not going to work. I think the way it works is we will be judged according to our works. And guess what? If I'm in Christ, perfect works have been imputed to my account. So then he will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, because Christ was the good and faithful servant and I'm in him and all of his works are imputed to me. All right. So, all right. In Christian teaching, it is not believers themselves who will judge others on the last day, but rather God who will serve as the ultimate judge. The Bible 
particularly in, particularly in the New Testament, describes Jesus Christ as the one who will return to glory to judge the living and the dead. The idea is that all individuals, regardless of their religious affiliation, will stand before God's judgment seat to give an account of their lives. The basis of judgment will be each person's actions, motivations, and faith as revealed in the teachings of Jesus and the moral principles of Christ. Therefore, while Christian be- Christians believe in the final judgment and the, uh, therefore, while Christians believe in the final judgment and the accountability of all believers. So that doesn't help me any. I, I'm, I think that there is, isn't there a passage about us judging? Do we judge the angels? Right? Uh, see, hang on. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to look something up. Yeah. I, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. That's the passage I, I, I'm thinking of. I think it's First Corinthians or Second Corinthians. That's what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Okay. In Christian theology, the concept of judgment of angels is based on various bib- uh, biblical texts. According to these references, angels are subject to judgment by God, who is considered the ultimate judge. One of the key passages that allude to the judgment of angels is found in First Corinthians, which states, "Do you not know that we will judge angels?" How much more the things of this life? This verse suggests that believers will have a role in judging angels in the eschatological context, possibly referring to the final judgment. Uh, additionally, the book of Jude in the New Testament talks about the judgment of angels who rebelled against God. All right, so so we, we're not given a lot of information, but I don't know where it's like we are going to be judging the apostate. And he's borrowing that from Jude or from Obadiah, but I don't know where I, I am a little perplexed here. And he's just, he's saying it not in a very nonchalant way. Like, hey, we don't, we all know this. I, I, I mean, do you feel that in the last day when I guess now you're going to be without sin and now you get to judge the other people who still have sin? Mm, I don't know. All right, let, let's continue. But I think in the church we should. We don't use it because we want to be nice. And we don't like being mean with terms like apostate. But the best thing for us when we stumble and fall in sin is to have terminology that will help us assess our own spiritual walk. And apostasy is a word that helps us with that. Apostasy. Here's how John MacArthur summarizes it in a very helpful little blog post on the Grace to You website. He says, apostates are those who fall away from the true faith, abandoning what they formerly professed to believe. True Christians do not apostatize. Those who fall away into apostasy demonstrate that their faith was never real to begin with. I think that's a helpful definition that reflects 1 John chapter 2, which we read with Peter earlier. True believers may stumble and fall into sin, but they will repent and come back. To- I, I can't, I hate that terminology. True believers wi- will f- stumble and fall into sin. True believers live in sin. Okay, We have a sinful nature. We are perpetually in a state of sin. 
It's like, it's like, you know, we're going to just have these periods of sinlessness and then we're going to stumble and fall into a sin. No, 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 no. That's so, I can't stand that terminology because it seems to deny the presence of the sinful nature and it seems to deny the reality that we're constantly sinning some way, shape or form. How do I know? What is the biblical standard? Be holy as God is holy. You have never been that. You will never be that practically. You are that positionally. Therefore, you're in a perpetual state of disobedience. Love God with all your heart, mind, body and soul. You'll never do that. So you're in a perpetual state of sin. So many times like, well, Christians, Christians may fall into sin. Christians are already in sin. Now we may fall into specific bigger sins as far as our, the way we measure them, humanly speaking. But remember, if you're guilty, if you fall, if you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So, I mean, you're, you're always in sin in some way, shape or form. I don't like that. Like, well, you can be going along sinless. No, 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 no. You are always sinful. You just may fall into a public sin, a, a scandal. You may, but you're always sinning. I, I don't know why we can't just ever acknowledge that. Okay. I'm not saying that that's what he's doing, but I can't stand that phrase. Well, I mean, a Christian may fall into sin. What do you mean may? They live in it. Okay. They, they live in it. Not, not positionally, but practically. To the Lord. But the apostate is one who proves they never had true faith because they do not repent and return. In this life, we can't see the difference, right? Someone might backslide for years and come back to the Lord on their deathbed. And that's what we should pray for. With every person who walks away from the faith, Lord, I did this, Some of, many of you are aware, the, the, the uh, well-known Christian writer from the 90s and early 2000s, Joshua Harris, declared himself an apostate. He was honest enough to use the term and define it for the people reading his blog post when he left the faith. My, my response to that, whenever I think of him, is to pray, Lord, may he not be an apostate. May he be wrong in his self-assessment. May your spirit draw him back. Maybe draw him for the first time to true faith. That should be our prayer for every person that we see who once claimed to be a believer, once had a place in the visible church. For every child born into a Christian home who grows up and leaves the church, Our prayer should be, Lord, may they not be apostates. May they be your children and may you draw them to yourself. May they come to true faith and true repentance. That should be our prayer. But Esau in Scripture is God's favorite example of apostasy. Now I do I do like that he has that that he's got that kind of mentality. I do like that presentation that hey when someone apostatizes instead of just gossiping, slandering, talking about them, saying oh, I never liked their books anyway and I always, that's what all Christ, Christians always do that drives me insane. There'll be some article and they'll be like, "Well, I always knew something was wrong. I never liked him anyway. He he was trash anyway." 
oh, just stop it. I, like, cause it, it's, it's, you're gonna, you're gonna say that to make yourself look better. Like you were the, you, you had the moral authority and you had the spiritual insight. You didn't know what was wrong with everyone else. Just stop that. Stop. You know what you do? Instead of talking about yourself, yeah, pray for the person. Be upset about it. You know, just tell everyone else to stop talking about them and pray for them. Instead of talking about, if you're going to talk about them, talk to God about them. Don't be talking to everyone else about them on social media. I don't care if it's Joshua Harris. I don't care who it is. Pray for them. Hope, care, love. Not saying justify. Sometimes I, I think Christians just like, oh, oh, they fell. I didn't like them anyway. They're trash anyway. That's, a lot of people did that with Mark Driscoll. At one point, Mark Driscoll was the flavor of the month and everyone loved him. And the next person like, I never liked him anyway. He was a bunch of trash. He was arrogant. It's like, so were you either quiet the whole time or you've just always hated the man and now you're you're literally celebrating his fall or his trouble. Why are you celebrating someone's fall and trouble? That is the most, like whatever sin they committed, you're committing sin. So, yeah, we need to have that kind of mentality. Born in the covenant family, circumcised on the eighth day because God commanded it. Notice I didn't say that the way Paul refers to being circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, even before the law declared it. God had told Abraham that Isaac was to be circumcised on the eighth day. We see that in Genesis. And I'm not seeing my note about the reference to that here, but you can find it when it refers to Isaac being circumcised. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the word of God. Esau had everything outward going for him about the faith. He was raised in worship services with his family. He was raised making sacrifices. Even as he grew up, he still made some sacrifices. But they were all outward show. And he left the faith. And we need to be cautious about this ourselves. I think in the church today, we see two types of apostate. We see the Esau type. The Edom type. The Joshua Harris type. The one who abandons the faith publicly and seeks to harm those who still remain in the faith. Joshua Harris, not with violence, but by seeking to break down what people believe about God and the Bible, to tear down the faith. That is a spiritual version of what God is saying in Obadiah. Violence against your brother. Joshua Harris. Okay, now, all right. I understand he's trying to draw a parallel. I don't think you can say Obadiah is talking about that's the violence against your brother. The violence against your brother is specifically mentioned here. They stood back and did nothing and then celebrated when they the, their brothers, quote unquote, were taken captive. And then it appears, well, at least according to his account, and I think maybe it is here as well, they killed people. They literally committed actual violence. So I, I don't know if, you know, Hey, someone turned from the faith and now they're tearing down the faith that they're committing the sin of, of Edom here in Obadiah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if I can draw that parallel. I, I think that maybe, come on now. Come on. Come on. I, I don't know. I mean, this is very historical, specific 
you know, maybe, maybe you can draw that parallel. Maybe you can say in similar way, those who turn from the faith will go against their brother in these ways. So that it's not, and we're not going to call it violence as in Obadiah, but in similar ways, there's a hostility towards or a, or an attempt to hurt spiritually. Maybe here they were trying to hurt possibly physically. So I guess you could draw a parallel in that, in that sense. And others like him. I'm not trying to just pick on him. He, he's one that I think of and pray for so much because he had some wonderful books that he apparently hypocritically wrote. Without realizing it at the time, I think. But there's that violent type. There are a lot more, though, that are apostates who are quiet and polite. You go ahead and believe what you want to believe. I won't make trouble for the church. I'm just going to slip over here. But all of them, all of them turning from King Jesus and his rightful rule and will be judged. So how do we gauge ourselves? This is really interesting because I, I don't know if I truly, I mean, he, he, he's, I guess he's given us a little bit of Obadiah. It's gone to us really, really, really quick. It, it, I just, I don't know if I still, if he's really articulated everything going on here, right? So I know he wants to pivot to us, but I just, I don't, you know, I just feel like we didn't really make it through 10 through 14. And then he jumped and then said that we're going to judge apostates, which I don't know where that came from. Then, okay, and, all right. Then, then he gave us two different kinds of apostates. I don't know if that comes from Obadiah. All right, so, all right. Let's see now. I guess now we're going to go application. Let's see where the application is going to go. With what do we assess whether I'm a true believer or not? Because dearly beloved God wants you to have assurance. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to, I know we're at 68 minutes, but we can't stop because we're about to get into it. All right, here we go. This is the never-ending issue in evangelicalism. This is the never-ending issue. On one hand, we say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You're saved by an imputed righteousness, where you, still a sinner, are declared to be perfectly righteous because Christ's righteousness is accredited to your account, even though you are still a sinner. Then we turn around and say, however, if you're truly saved, this is how you know you're saved. Now, I guarantee you, he's, I, I, I could be a thousand percent wrong, but I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that what he's about to do is say, how do you know you're truly saved? It's because you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. No, the answer always is, how do I know I'm saved? Because of Christ and his righteousness and his death and his blood, because he did that for me. And that is accredited to my account. By faith, proof of my salvation is Christ. If you say, no, 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 the proof of salvation 
is you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. Number one, I'm never going to do those things perfectly. So my imperfection is somehow going to be proof of my salvation when God's law demands perfection. That's just illogical. No, you give me that list and I will say in Christ, I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this, but I could be wrong. Maybe he's going to point us to the finished work of Christ, not our sinful work, but we'll, we'll see which one is, where would you rather find assurance? Your work or Christ's work? If you need assurance, look to Christ and him crucified. Don't look to the work you do because the work you do is tainted with sin, corrupted with sin, and you never, ever, 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 ever come close to doing them anywhere remotely close to perfect. An entire book of the New Testament is written so that you might be assured that you are going to heaven. So that you might not wake up every morning thinking, am I going to hell? The book of Hebrews was given that you might be assured and confident. Now, I figured he was going to say 1 John. I think he meant 1 John. I don't think he meant Hebrews. I don't think he meant Hebrews. If he meant Hebrews, I'm totally baffled and confused. Hey, there's no way he meant Hebrews. I, he's going to correct himself. He has to. He meant 1 John. But if you say Hebrews, Hebrews was written not to give people assurance. It was to challenge those. The temple, it was written around 67, 68 AD. The temple's about to be destroyed. It's written to Jews to say, hey, don't hold on to your Judaism because your Judaism is not going to be there anymore. It's no longer going to be there. It's going to be destroyed. The temple, there's not going to be a priest, a temple, a sacrifice. You need to have that which is better than all of that, which is Christ. Now, if he's going to per- point to 1 John, 1 John is a polemic against Gnosticism. It's a challenge to see if they have turned to Gnosticism. That it, it's a, And it's about our fellowship with God because our salvation is it's, it's not determined by what we do. It's determined by what Christ did. Our fellowship is impacted by what we do. All right. So let, let's let's see where he's going to go. I, I know there's no way he meant Hebrews. All right. I, I, he's going to correct it and say First John. That you are indeed saved. And yet that same book is the one that has the most to say about apostasy and those who walk away and will be judged. Here is one of the most simple ways to assess ourselves. It comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. Oh, he actually meant Hebrews. That's insane. Hebrews is written to the Jews to warn them of the coming destruction of everything. Hey, you, everything's going to be destroyed. Don't go back to Judaism because there's not going to be anything left. So he says Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter in my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. All right, okay, let's see what he's going to do with this. He's going to see what he's going to do with it. Now I'm a little... I'm a little perplexed. And and I think the fear is 
Do you see what's happening? This is supposed to be about Obadiah, and we're fast, quickly leaving Obadiah. We're we're leaving Obadiah so far in the dust. And so now I'm left with this sermon to figure out, wait, am I going to be the one judging apostates? Where did that come from? And now I'm going to be dealing with myself. We're already leaving Obadiah so far behind. So, But let's see what we're going to do with Hebrews here. It tells us what separates the apostate from the true believer. Both hear God's word declared. Both claim with their mouth to believe. Both attend worship. Both are part of the visible church. But Hebrews 4 verse 2 declares, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Not being mixed with faith. Now, I don't know many who have left the faith who said they didn't have faith at all. So the thing we must ask is, what is faith according to the epistle of Hebrews? In what is faith placed if it is true saving faith? See, many who leave the faith, as well as many true believers who backslide, if they really assess their faith in that moment, they might have to say their faith was in morality, law-keeping, goodness. And the New Testament makes it very clear that that is nothing but dead legalism. It's dead. I do like this because he's showing that the, the, the way to know our salvation is based on faith. Now, we have to have true faith in the right thing, which is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is, I, I really thought that he was going to go to what we do. So this is much better. So I, I feel better about this. Now, I, I still feel like we're moving a million miles away from Obadiah. I'm still trying to figure Obadiah 10 through 14 and still trying to figure out how Obadiah tells me I'm going to be somehow judging apostates. Okay. But this, this is at least, this is, this is at least good. Let's, let's see if he can drive this point home. It will not save you on the last day. Others who leave the faith or are backslidden for a time have a faith in appearances. Specifically, my own appearance. I think that I look good enough. That could be literally that I dress nicely enough to attend worship. Or that my life is uh, well-ordered and my home, everything's in its place because cleanliness is next to godliness. Or any number of other things, right? Appearance, how people see me. Well, they see me giving money to this this charity. They see me doing some work project in the community. They see me doing all these different things, but Christ says that that is nothing but faith that is a whitewashed tomb. It looks good on the outside, but isn't there just a rotting corpse on the inside? What about faith and feelings? That might be the most dangerous of all. Because your feelings for a while might tell you, oh, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love the gospel. 
If it's faith and feelings, the danger is feelings are superficial and ever-shifting. What about faith and faith itself? Those, those of you who know me well enough probably to hold up your hand when you said you knew I was going to preach three sermons on Obadiah. I'll also know that I, I, always, I always reflect back on, I consider every movie made in the late 90s had a line like this. I don't care what you believe in as long as you believe in something. Your faith doesn't have to be my faith as long as you have faith. That's empty, biblically speaking. And Look, I'm not, and all of this is fine. I'm, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. Remember, these, uh, just always for those who tune in late, when I do sermon reviews, I don't listen to the sermons first because I'm not trying to pick sermons to criticize. This is all a part of our Sermons 2.0 app challenge where we're choosing sermons at random, 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 random. So, and we're doing 21 days on the Minor Prophets here. So, um, I'm just, I'm just confused in some ways where we've gotten. This is, this is a sermon on Obadiah 10 through 14. To me, and this is just my approach to the text, we would be looking at Obadiah 10 through, uh, uh, Obadiah 10 through 14. We would just make sure we know who the Edomites are, kind of have a little historical background of what's going on. And then mainly for the 10 through 14, we would lay out what were the sins of Edom. And 10 through 14, what were their sins? And how do we see us in those sins? How do we, how do you and I are guilty of similar sins in, in 2024? How do we not show, how do we, in a sense, treat our brothers wrong? How do we treat people incorrectly? How do we, and so we can find parallels. Now he did a little bit of that. He kind of called it violence, which I wasn't, you know, I, I I, I think we, I, I think we, I, look, I'm going to just stay with that. What you need to do, if you're going to get anything from book, a book of Obadiah, is what you need to do is this. And I already stated it, but I'm going to just repeat your assignment. Go through the book of Obadiah and write down the sins of Esau slash Edom, right? The Edomites are descendants of Esau, okay? Esau slash Edom. And just write down their, what their sins were. And then when you walk, write down those sins, then ask yourself, how do you see yourself in those sins? That's 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 what we're to 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 do. I don't know where we're going with the rest of this, but yeah, that's that's all right. But let let's let him finish. Meaningless faith and faith. So what does Hebrews tell us that we must assess ourselves based on faith? In what's the next word you say? Faith and faith can be so easy to say, isn't it? But it's not faith and faith. It's faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. I am not saved by faith. I'm saved by grace, which comes from Christ. Faith is necessary, isn't it? It's an instrument or a vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to unite your heart to the grace 
of Jesus Christ. But it is the grace, unmerited favor of Jesus Christ, which saves you. We maybe say by grace through faith, but the faith is not of ourselves. It's not like, like I end up having the faith and then the Holy Spirit uses the faith to save me. God has to give me the faith. I have to be given. It's a gift from God. That's why I can't boast. Even my faith is a gift. Okay, all right. So I, I still, this seems to me like we're so far from Obadiah here, but all right, let's continue. Our faith must be in the covenant mediator, as the Old Testament would have put it. Our grace, uh, our faith must be in the salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross, shed, shedding his blood for us. Friends, you are all destined for the day of judgment. All of us. And there are only two things that will be said as judgment on that last day. Some will be judged, condemned, and disciplined eternally, according to Jesus himself, in a lake of fire. The others will be judged acquitted, righteous, righteous only in Christ alone. Are you Esau or are you Jacob? Are you a true believer or are you one who only outwardly shows faith? We must take this seriously for it is at the very heart of how we see Christ himself presented to us. I'm going to conclude this sermon by reading to you from Isaiah 63. All right, I'm going to stop there because obviously we're not doing anything else in Obadiah. Uh, the name of that sermon is The Day of the Lord and Apostasy, Rever- Reverend Nathan Tom- Tomlinson. Uh, and this is obviously, I guess, part two of the book of Obadiah. Um, And so they don't have it as part one, part two. So again, we were choosing them at random. Please go look up the sermon. Listen to the last eight minutes of it. Uh, The Day of the Lord and Apostasy, Reverend Nathan Tomlinson. Uh, Listen to the others, download it, stream it. So they get the numbers. And you may want to follow them. You may want to follow them. I love the fact that he didn't turn the gospel and mix in works in such a way to destroy the gospel. I love that. He pointed us to faith in Christ and the finished work of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. I absolutely love that. Perfect. Amen. 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 I love it. That my, my, conf- my somewhat confusion is, I don't know how we ultimately kind of, I kind of see how we got there, but I just feel like Obadiah 10 through 14 is a passage that says, here are the sins of Edom and how they treated Israel. Here's what they did. How do you see yourself in these sins? All right. So that to me is, is the main focus here, right? That's what's, that's where the text goes, right? That's where the text is. I don't know how we get into we, you and me, we're going to judge the apostates. And the day of judgment, I I don't know. I, I got to do some thinking about that. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm missing something. We do have a passage that seems to say we will judge the angels. But I mean, like, is God going to look to me and go, hey, 
hey, hey, what do you think? Like, how am I going to be judging them? Do I do I go grab them and throw them into the lake of fire? Do I do I say, does God say, what do you think? Oh, I think they're 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 sinners. Throw them in the like like I don't I don't really I don't know how that plays out. So that that is a little confusing to me. But for us, your assignment is simple. The book of Obadiah, 21 verses, go through all 21, write down the sins of Esau slash Edom, and then, and then really just write out how, how you see yourself in those sins. How? Be very specific, right? Now, afterwards, you may want to burn the paper because you, you, know, you may not want anyone to see it, but be very specific and acknowledge how we see ourselves in those sins. And then be grateful for God's grace. Be grateful for the fact that we're saved by grace and not according to works. And there you have it. All right. Thank you for listening. That was 86 minutes. Wow. That was a long broadcast. Uh, I do apologize. There was two or three times in there where I started talking and then I looked down and realized I did not have, there's two, there's a, there on the computer, there's an off on switch. When I get ready to go talk, I have to click that back on. And then, and when I'm get when I'm done talking, I'm going to play the audio. I have to click it off. And then I also have a manual button on my microphone that I have to turn off or on. So, um, yeah. And so I kept messing that up. I would start talking and realize the other mic wasn't on. Those of you listening on Church One, you just heard me repeat myself like a couple of times, probably going, "What is wrong with him?" All right, but that's what was going on. So, um, hopefully, hopefully we can get that all. I'll get better at doing that um, because. Yeah, I was using a different platforms. So when, when you switch all these different platforms and you're trying different things, then you got to get used to how things work. So I apologize for that. All right. I, I, I wish I had something profound to say, but uh, hey, the Sermons 2.0 app, use it and uh, keep working on, on 21 messages, at least at a minimum. That's one per day. Um, on the Minor Prophets, just one book at a time, just ran and pick random sermons from the app. And don't look for the type of church, just as random as random. I picked that one completely random. And uh, that that was good. So look that one up, download it, give them the, give them the download numbers, give them the streaming numbers, listen to them, follow them, you know, and uh, go listen to the rest and listen to their other sermons in the series on Obadiah. Thanks for listening. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great Tuesday evening. God bless.